Welcome to Broadcast 1132. You can join us live every Sunday during our worship experience in Allen, Texas or at church1132.com. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is the kicking off place today. Beginning with verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. I remember as a young college student, a pastoral counselor in training, when this scripture was opened up to me by the Holy Spirit in a way that produced an aha moment. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You hear something that you've heard so many times before, and you wonder in that moment when the light goes on and you go, how could I have missed that up until now? And usually it's something very direct and very simple because the simple is the most profound and the most profound will be discovered to be the simplest. I believe Jesus was what you call an ABC Darian and it is a word, by the way. A-B-E-C-E-D-A-R-I-A-N and it means the rudimentary or the fundamental, taking all that which is so complicated and boiling it down to something simple. And so Jesus comes onto the scene when the law and the Torah had reached mammoth proportions like the IRS code, and he said, all of the law and prophets can be summarized in these two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was an ABC Darian. And in that moment, that simple truth uh, uh, lit up on my mind. It suddenly became lucid and clear it bursts on our physical and spiritual and emotional sight almost like a skyrocket on the 4th of July when we see something we previously did not see. And what I heard in this passage and the aha moment that I sat in that classroom and received that day was very, very simple. I can depend on the Holy Spirit to minister to me when I am in trouble. And once he ministers to me, I can also count on the fact that he will empower me through that experience to turn around and minister the same comfort to someone else. You might call it comforted to comfort others or blessed to be a blessing or encouraged to be an encourager. But today I want to dub it on the, these terms, given hope to give hope. All of the hope that God has ever poured into your heart at a moment of need, he never intended for us to hold it tight to ourselves, but he intended for us to pour it out on those around us. To be sure, hope is an essential core element of any pursuit of comfort. That's what Paul told his Roman friends in his personal letter to them. In Romans 5, 1 to 5, he said, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Wow. 
and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And I think he was writing it just like I'm saying it to you now. (laughs) And hope does not put us to shame. The old King James Bible that I learned it in as a child says, and hope does not disappoint Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You can put up with a whole lot of junk when there's just a glimmer of hope. Proverbs 13, 12 to 14 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. I mentioned our seven grandchildren. One of the things that Grammy, and we're known as Grammy and Bampa, (laughs) our first granddaughter somehow got Grandpa mixed up with Bampa, and that's what stuck. And so now I'm Bampa, and she's Grammy. And Grammy loves to take uh, Hallmark Christmas ornaments around Thanksgiving time and present all of our grandkids with a special Hallmark Christmas ornament. Darice has been a little bit of a fanatic about that, actually. Hallmark. Yeah, you've calmed down quite a bit. This, yeah. She would get the catalog and she'd let them sit down and flip through the catalog, which is really dangerous because then they pick out the one they want. And Parker, our, uh, the, the third youngest born of our oldest son, decided he wanted a Star Wars Darth Vader Christmas <laughs> ornament. Now, I have a hard time getting around how some of this stuff is associated with Christmas in the first place, especially Darth Vader. It was like, well, you know, what do you do? You, you pull on his arm and he goes, Jesus, I am your father. I don't. <laughs> I said, this has to be sacrilegious somehow. But he had decided he wanted that particular ornament, and so... We built it up, and on a certain occasion, we took them to the Hallmark store, and now the hope is building because he's not only seen it in the catalog, but he's going to the store, and then the hope builds more because Therese takes him over, Grammy takes him over to the place, the display, and he actually sees the Hallmark ornament. And then he can put his hand on the Hallmark ornament, and he can... When I said, what does it do? Say, Jesus is your father, or Jesus, I'm your father. He goes, no, Bampa, that's not what he does. When you walk past him, he says something about cookies. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But then that fateful moment when hope is deferred came. Because Grammy said, okay, Bampa, take the kids to the car. What? (laughs) I'm this close to Darth Vader. He put up the biggest fuss in the world. I'm taking him on out to the car, and he's, I want that ornament. (laughs) There's a lady over there going, yeah, I know how it is. I'm a grandma, too. And I get him in the car, and he's still just 
hope deferred. His heart is sick. But there was something that his sisters did. They, they reached out in an unusual moment of compassion. <laughs> and one of them said, Parker, remember what Grammy said. She said there's a surprise coming on Thanksgiving. He shut down his hopefulness in a moment's time because there was a glimmer of hope reignited. And he was fine because Grammy said, hopelessness is the kind of moment Paul has in mind when he's led to encourage the hearts of the Corinthians by assuring them that comfort is on the way. When there is no hope, there is more than just heart sickness. In the absence of hope, there is desperation and darkness. There's a finality that in sometimes, uh, sometimes in people's minds leaves no options. I have a close friend who did his doctoral work on the topic of suicide, and in his thesis he concluded that there are many clinical and psychological reasons that can be identified as a cause for suicide, as the reasons for which people would choose to take their own life, but the common denominator amongst all of them is this. People conclude it is the only option left. In fact, in some extreme cases, as our minds wrap around the hopelessness to a point that we conclude it's not just the only option, it's the best option. That's what hopelessness leads to. Sometimes our hopelessness is tied to circumstances beyond our control, while other consequences are of our own actions or poor decisions. But whether self-inflicted or inflicted in externally, hurt hurts, pain is pain, hopelessness is hopelessness. And it's not a matter, and nor is it an appropriate question to ask whether we deserve hope. The question is, does a person need hope? And every person needs hope. It would be like one of us going to the doctor because we had been cleaning our gun and we forgot that it was loaded and we shot ourselves through the foot and we go into the emergency room and they're in the midst of helping us out and stitching it up and they, by chance, the doctor says, now how did this happen? And we go, oh, I did something really stupid. I didn't check the gun and I shot myself in the foot. And he looks at all the helpers around the room and he says, oh, well, in that case, we're done. But that's what we do in God's church sometimes. Oh, you got yourself into this. Well, then you get yourself out of this. And once you get yourself cleaned up, then you come back to us and then maybe we can talk some more. And if Jesus were in the foyer of any one of our churches, his churches, I should say, on any given Sunday, he'd be taking the people who shot themselves in the foot and he'd be gathering them all together and he'd be saying, okay, come on, let's figure out how to fix this up, stupid or not stupid. 
Job is a study of hopelessness in the Old Testament. He reached a point after God had a conversation with the devil one day, and the devil says, oh, you've got him so protected and so surrounded, he'll serve you because he's got an easy life. The Lord said, oh, no, no, he's a righteous man. He goes, well, you just let me have a chance at him. He says, you can do anything to him except take his life, and I will tell you, he will stand up as a righteous man. So the devil went after him full bore, took his home, his family, took his health, took his wealth, everything went away. And people around him are probably saying things like, oh, I wonder what Job did to deserve that. There must be something. He reached a point of hopelessness in Job chapter 3, verse 23, and he said, Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden? He's just contemplating his own life. He says, Whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in, for sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace no quietness, I have no rest, only turmoil. Job's life situation was careening toward hopelessness. Those around him who might have been in a position to minister some degree of hope missed the opportunity. Job's own wife, and I try not to be too hard on Job's wife because I know what it is like to walk through hopeless situations and those around you are affected radically by our hopelessness. And she was in that position. She had lost her home, her wealth, her family. So she, she's having just as much of a challenge, but she's responding in a little different way. She's saying, I've had it up to here. Did your mother ever do that? <laughs> I've had it up to here. I used to think, Mom, why don't you tell me like when it's down here? I've had it up to here. Okay, so now I know I've got from here to here. <laughs> Somehow it went from here to here for Job's wife, and she said, I've had it up to here. And here's what she expresses to Job in Job 2.9. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Why not just curse God and die. Then for the next 37 chapters of this book that bears Job's name, we have a record of what could be called a series of lectures or debates between Job and a group of so-called comforters. They told him he must have sinned in order to face such suffering. They suggested he was boastful and proud. They called him a blasphemer. They kept searching for the reason or reasons for Job's suffering because there just had to be one and they weren't privy to the conversation that the devil had with God and the fact that Job was suffering because he was righteous. And after all that exchange, which spanned a period of time, the Lord finally enters the conversation. He's been silent up to that point. And this is a very important point I want us to pick up on today. 
Sometimes heaven seems silent because heaven is silent. God is waiting. He's waiting for that opportune moment to enter the scene and to speak Because he's waiting for things to align themselves. He's letting the circumstances do their work. God is at work. After all that exchange, heaven's silent, God decides he's going to enter the conversation in Job 42.7. He comes in with this comment, and it's a comment I never want to hear from the Lord. After the Lord had said these things to Job, and he had had a conversation with him, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, who was one of the comforters, I'm angry with you and your friends, because you have not spoken the truth about me, like my servant Job has. That makes me step back, folks, and go, I'd better be really careful when I speak to somebody who's in pain and suffering and hopelessness, because I don't want God to come on a few minutes later and go, Les, I'm angry with you. You've not spoken the truth like the one who's suffering is speaking the truth. There was a preferable way for Job's comforters to respond to Job's plight, the way that Paul challenged the Corinthians to pass on the same comfort they'd received to others. And perhaps they didn't need to involve much conversation at all. Perhaps it should have just largely consisted of what we call the power of presence. Just being there. Went in for cancer treatment three years, four years ago now. One of the aspects of it was a surgery. And I'm doing well, by the way. The last visit. And we got to the hospital that morning, and one of our very good friends, Monty Hip is his name, shows up unexpectedly. And Monty is sitting there in the waiting room. And Monty says, I said to him, What in the world are you doing here? And he just said this phrase Remember, Les, the power of presence. I said, you didn't need to be here. And he goes, remember the power of presence. Just standing there, being there. When they arrived, those friends observed Job so stricken with disease and trouble, they did not even recognize him. In Job 2, it says, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes, met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. 
And they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads, which would have been a cultural, a relevant or, or contemporary cultural expression of sorrow. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. And what if that had been the end of the book of Job? What if they just would have sat with him? The reputation, the conversation with God that followed would have been very different if they had just exhibited the power of presence. But in considering Job's story, somehow Job remained hopeful. How? How? In Job, that famous statement that we often quote, Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. And I want to make sure that we properly understand that. Here's a guy who's this close to death, and he's not very humbly and quietly saying to the Lord, Though you slay me, yet will I serve you. He's going, Though you slay me, yet will I serve you. He's dealing with his anger, his question, his frustration. And he knows God can listen to those words and those expressions. And he's able to say to him, in fact, one translation, the New Living Translation, captures what I think he was really saying. God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I'm going to argue my case with him. Job persisted and prevailed because his hope was properly placed. Think about how we use the word hope. Oh, I hope it doesn't rain today. We're going to have a picnic. <laughs> yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. <laughs> I hope the store is open. I need to pick something up. Oh, I hope so-and-so shows up for the party. I would miss them if they weren't there. That's just a stated desire, a desired outcome. It's really a modern definition of an old, ancient word that has far more power than that. The modern definition is a feeling or expectation for a certain desired thing to happen. But the biblical power of the word is much greater than that. The archaic definition and that which is conveyed in the word as it's used in the scripture is a confidence in that which is certain. Now I don't know about you, but I've only found one person, one thing, one person to whom that definition applies. And his name is Jehovah who manifested himself in the person of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Yahweh Goel, the Lord, my redeemer. Yahweh M. Kadesh, the Lord who makes holy. Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is my peace. Yahweh Rophe, the Lord who heals. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord who provides. It's the only one to whom that definition applies. 
And so when I talk about putting my hope and confidence in that which is certain, I'm talking about placing it in the Lord alone. Psalm 25, 1 to 3 says, In you, Lord God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Psalm 33, 20 says, We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower or fortress. The righteous run into it and they're safe. You know what that Hebrew word means? The righteous run into it and they are spiraled Now, you may be sitting there listening to me today. You don't know us or me or my story. And if you're like me, you often say, well, what does this guy have to say about anything? I don't know him. This is the hard part of the message for me. Forty years of ministry, eighteen years as a pastor, twenty years as a network off a district officer. Everything I ever wanted to do or be was a righteous man. I made some really bad choices along the way. First of all, about how to take care of myself or not take care of myself. The Lord's rumbling. (laughs) I overworked. I took too much upon my own shoulders that should have been allowed to rest on the shoulders of the Lord. I overperformed. I felt that I fell short all of the time, and I wore myself out. In fact, by the time that I was leaving office, a psychiatrist diagnosed me, a Christian man who was raised in the home of a preacher, a wonderful godly man was treating me for clinical depression, high anxiety disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, if I was preaching to my friends who are fellow superintendents, they might all say, well, I understand that. And in the fog of all of that stuff, which I had to understand was the precursor for 
what occurred in my life because I always felt like if I looked at that and offered it to myself or even to you this morning, that felt like an excuse for what I'm about to tell you. But the doctors kept telling me, Les, you have to understand these are not excuses, these are reasons. And I was feeling very trapped and very hopeless at certain moments. And I made some personal decisions that were truly defined by momentary and fleeting, but sinful nonetheless. And it predicated my resignation as superintendent. An entrance into what the Assemblies of God calls a restoration program, which is a two-year sit-down from ministry and a whole lot of trauma. One of the things that occurred in the early days is some of our best friends, as we heard over this weekend, the people who really identify, I think you said it last night in your, your message, they came out of the woodwork. And I leaned over, and maybe it was the first night, I, I'm not sure, but I put my hand on your mother's shoulder, and I patted her, because your dad and your mom were amongst the first people to reach out to us. And your mom kept doing that, Becca. You did it over and over. And on days when we didn't think there was sunshine of any kind to be found, we'd get a little note from Becca. We went to a cabin that was supplied by a pastor friend of ours. He had been a youth pastor on our team when we were pastoring North Seattle, and he had arranged for this gorgeous cabin on Ponderay Lake in North Idaho. And so we went there, and the first week, contrary to our counselor's suggestion, and we look back now, and though the Lord redeemed it, uh, we see the wisdom that they were trying. They said, we're not sure you should go there and be by yourselves at this point. One of the things we've learned through our experience is that when people are broken, and hurting and hopeless, isolation is not the answer. It's the natural inclination, but it is not the answer. We can't let people be alone. And so we went to the cabin, and the week was bearing on, and my sister and her husband were going to join us the second week, but it was just getting darker and darker. My buddy called and he said, Les, we want to have dinner with you. And I said, okay, we'll meet you halfway between here and Coeur d'Alene. And then he said, we'll come to the house and we'll have uh, games and just have fun. As the day wore on, the darkness began to bear down both externally and internally. And we looked at each other and we said, we're not going to be good company. We need to call until we don't want to go to dinner 
And so we made a choice to self-isolate. I called him and I said, we're not going to be very good company tonight, Mike. I said, I, I don't think you should come. Well, okay. We were sitting on the porch. beautiful view. I mean, God's handiwork all around us, His evident presence. But we had a block because we were hopeless. I was ashamed and full of guilt. The enemy was coming down on me big time. And at the same moment, we looked at one another, and it's hard for me to say this to you, but God has really impressed me that when I make this presentation, I need to say these things. We looked at each other at the same moment and said, maybe we need to think of a way to just disappear. And we didn't mean like flee to Canada. We meant take our lives, make a plan. Doris said to me, maybe we should make a plan. It was at that moment that we heard And around the end of the porch where we sat, were our friends, Mike and Roxanne. He had a Razzleberry Pie, Marie Callender's, <laughs> in one hand, and a half gallon of ice cream in the other. He said, I know you told us not to come, but we didn't think that was a good idea. So I brought a Marie Callender's Razzleberry Pie. Now, you don't have to have a piece of pie, but I'm going to go in the house and I'm going to bake this pie, and you don't need to come in. You can just sit out here. And when that pie is done, I'm going to cut a piece of that pie, and I'm going to have a piece of that pie with ice cream. Now, you don't have to have a piece of that pie if you don't want to. If you knew my friend Mike, you'd appreciate the story even more. But we're just going to be here. The power of presence. They went in, baked the pie. We went in, had pie and ice cream. And we played games. You see, if this was an imaginary line, the line of hope right here across this platform, and I was in need of hope, and I came to stand on that line and say, I am desperate. I need the hope of God, the confidence that somehow has escaped me. 
how powerful it is when another person just comes and walks up alongside and just stands on that line with me. You don't need to be a counselor or a pastor or a trained professional. You don't need to know all the language. You don't need to have the words. All you need is the power of the Holy Spirit and His love, and He will guide you and direct you, and you can stand alongside of that person. And now I say thanks to Mike and Roxanne Rima, Marie Callender, and the Holy Spirit. We are here with you today. I don't know what it is that might have brought you to a place where you need hope. You may not consider yourself hopeless at this point, but you can see that you're maybe on that road careening toward hopelessness. And there is a line of hope that I'm drawing right here this morning around this platform. And it's going to be one upon which I'm going to ask people to come and stand. And then I'm going to ask others of you who feel more hopeful today, who have the confidence of the Lord, to come, especially if you know that person or persons, and you're going to come and stand with them on that line. I don't talk a lot about what I did in detail, because I don't want the devil to get any more glory for it than he's already gotten. And I don't want anyone to walk out of here today and say, oh my, that's what he did. I'm glad I didn't do that. I'm glad I'm not like him, the Pharisee. Nor do I want anyone to walk out and say, oh man, if that's all he did, I'm toast. The tax collector. It's not a matter of whether we deserve hope, because none of us do. It's a matter of whether we need hope. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about us at church1132.com.